Mick Taylor was teaching pastor at King's for many years. He's uh, based in Bournemouth. And uh, it's a total pleasure to welcome Mick Taylor back onto the uh, Catford stage. Let's welcome Mick. Well, it's good to be back. And um, the interchurch grapevine does stretch all the way down to Bournemouth. So uh, we do get news of how things are going uh, for Kings, but it's, it's much better to see you. Uh, great joy. And um, after listening to what all the announcements that Steve has just made, it reminds me again of one of the secrets of what makes King such a great church and uh, is the reasons for its growing influence um, and health, and that is the willingness to make courageous changes and to face the future with hope and faith. And I'm glad to see that's still alive uh, and strong amongst you. I'm also thrilled that um, about the news that Andrew Wilson is going to come and be the teaching pastor. Uh, Andrew's a, a, a good friend of mine. Um, he's one of my favorite Bible teachers. He has a huge gift in biblical knowledge and communication. And I don't know about you, have you ever met you know, two friends who don't quite know each other, but you know both of them well, and you think, wouldn't it be good if that somehow they could connect, and then they connect, and then get engaged, and then they get married, and it's like, yes! Um, I have to say, when I uh, started to hear that Andrew and Steve were talking about this possibility, that was exactly my feeling, yes. And the truth is that 18 months ago, when I was leaving, and daydreaming and praying for the future of kings, I thought... I'm sure they still need a teaching pastor. And uh, what would be my best answer to that? And it was Andrew. But I could never see how that would work, um, how he could be prized out of Eastbourne, um, how it just would connect together. So that it's happened. Um, and, and he'll be here in September as your teaching pastor. It couldn't make me happier. So I'm really pleased about that. Now we better get on. Um, today is... Uh, not part of a series, which is unusual at King's. In, in the preaching sort of profession, we call this a freebie. Uh, it's a, it's a, a one-off. You can decide whatever you want to preach. And um, I want to look this morning at the book of Romans. Yes, the whole book of Romans. But don't worry, you might get home for lunch. Because all I want to do is answer one question. And that question is, why did Paul write this book? Well, in fact, this letter. Why did he do that? And I think if you can get an understanding of that in your head, but even more importantly, in your heart, it can transform your life. It can make your heart pump faster. It can put the fizz back into your spiritual life. It can put the tiger back in the tank. But it will challenge you, challenge us, to give up our small ambitions. Remember this, we have one life. So don't waste it. Invest it in something of eternal significance. You have one life. So when I first became a Christian from a non-Christian background, I was captivated by the Bible. Um, not only its content, but how it's put together. But even in a very, in, I was 15, 16, I thought some preachers did strange things with the Bible. I don't know if you think that. Um, so they would get to a, a series like on Romans, and although we might read every Sunday through the book bit by bit, it didn't seem like we understood the whole book. It was a bit like getting the top ten favorite verses. 
and the preachers. And there's some great verses in Romans, aren't there? You know, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Or um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a great verse. It's not a very happy verse, but it's true. Or since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Or now there's no condemnation. They were great verses. And the preachers tend to focus on these top ten verses. And I got a lot out of learning about those verses. But no one really explained how they all fitted together. And in fact, you could have preached the series the other way around and started in chapter 12 or whatever and worked backwards. And I felt like there was something missing. There was something inadequate about that. Another approach was what is like systematic theology. Have you ever seen those big books of systematic theology, like Wayne Grudem's? And so they would preach through Romans, but, and you'd get doctrine. Every time you have a doctrine, say the first the doctrine of revelation, the doc- of general revelation and special revelation, or uh, the doctrine of justification by faith and sanctification, and how those two relate together, the doctrine of predestination, or the final perseverance of the saints. And again, that's all in, the, all in Romans, but Paul didn't write a systematic theology. It doesn't read like that. It's a letter to a church. It's, there's something more. The other approach, which I found not didn't quite make it was the sort of task list approach where the preacher hardly touched on the first 11 chapters but always got to the last four chapters with lots of to-dos and how to live practical discipleship and that was really useful too but it was a bit like someone had given you a whole pile of lego bricks and no plan of how you could put them all together whether they did the sort of hop skip and jump top 10 or the systematic theology or the task list. Something was missing. And I felt if we could get that something that was missing, it would make a world of difference to how we understood what Paul was trying to say. So, here's a tip. If you ever want to find out the purpose of a letter, especially in the New Testament, the best clues are found in the introduction and at the, the end. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read a little bit from the introduction and a little bit from the conclusion. And this is Romans chapter 1, verse 10 to 13. Paul says, I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. Yeah, he longed to do this, he had planned to do this, but something had held him back. He wanted to be there, for one, that he might strengthen them, give them some apostolic input. But it raises some question, what kept him? Why could he come now? Well, you can find answers to that if you read the last bit. We're going to find out what had delayed him, why he could come now, what he might hope, hope would happen when he arrived. So if we turn to Romans 15, I'm going to look at verses 19, 20, 22 and 28. Paul writes this. He's been talking about what he's been up to, what's kept him away. He said, so from Jerusalem all the way round to... I had to look this up. It's great on the computers, and you can put a word in. It tells you how to say it. I think I've got this right. From Jerusalem all the way around to il Liri. No, see? That's what he said. That's that word. Um, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Verse 22, but now, there, 
that there was no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there. And after I've enjoyed your company for a while, I will go to Spain and I will visit you on the way. Now, if you put all that together, this picture emerges that Paul had often wanted to come to see them. He said, I long, desired to visit Rome. He'd even planned to go there many times, but was prevented, not because he didn't have the money or that he didn't have the time, he was prevented because he had an overriding passion to spread the gospel to people and places that had never heard it before. And even now, he would only go and visit them because he could make a slight detour on his way to Spain. Which raises the question for each of us. What would, be, what would make you willing to put desires on hold, to change your plans, willing to forgo legitimate pleasures, live with unfulfilled desires? What would do that? Because that's what Paul did. And it was his passion that the gospel might be spread throughout this sin-sick world. Now, now I want to do some geography. Are you ready for some geography? There's a map coming up now. It shows you the provinces of the Roman Empire because they, he says, I've preached the gospel from Rome all the way around to Illyricum. Illyricum, that's how you say it. Right. If we have a close-up map, it would be even clearer where Illyricum is. So can I have the next map, please? Okay, from Jerusalem all the way around to that place. So that is a sort of top northeastern corner of the Mediterranean, that part of the quadrant. And he goes on to say, I preached, fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, and now there's no more place for me to preach the gospel there. Important to think what Paul means there. He doesn't mean he's preached to every person in that vast area nor that he has planted a church in every city in that area. He hadn't even visited every town. But for Paul, he knew his place in God's global mission. And that was to establish self-sustaining communities of Christian people that could be like a light in the darkness and salt to their community. And that from those communities that he established, like he had in Berea and um, Ephesus and Corinth and other places, Thessalonica, those churches will start planting other churches. That's why he says, my job is done, not because everyone, every city had a church, but he knew that job could get done now because he had planted these churches that would plant other churches. It's a bit like a spider plant. Do you know a spider plant? When we got married, um, we didn't have a garden, but we did have a spider plant. Um, It was like all the rage to have a spider plant. Now, these plants don't shed um, seeds to propagate. What they do is that after, if they're healthy, after a while, they will send out a shoot with a little plant, another plant on the end, and it plops it in the ground, and then the shoot goes away, and there's another plant. So these plants would usually put out more than one, two shoots. And those plants would root into the ground, and you leave it a little while, and if they were healthy and well-fed, they would put out shoots. So you'd start off with one, and then you would have three, then you could have 
well, lots, nine, it just got multiplied. If you planted it in your garden and just left it and it was healthy, in the end your whole garden is filled with spider plants. But Paul's like planting spider plants. They just happen to be called Christian communities, churches. And he said, I've planted enough that I know I can leave this, they're healthy. They're going to plant more and more churches. And I have to go to another part of the garden. I have to go to Spain to start the same process there. So when he says I've fully preached, he means I've planted enough churches and got them established in that part of the world. And he's not saying, and now I deserve a holiday. So I've always fancied Rome. I put it off for a while, now I'm going to have a holiday in Rome. He doesn't, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I've got a desire to do this again in Spain. That's my passion. And I just noticed my travel route will part, take me past Italy so I can pop in to see you. And you might be able to help me on this project. Now, that might seem a bit remote and a bit distant. What's it got to do with us? Paul was willing to put on hold a whole load of things to fulfill this mission of God that throughout the world there might be beacons of light and hope and love that people might see what God can do with people like us. It is not just an apostolic calling. It is for every Christian to be involved in that in some way or another. And that's why he's going to go to Rome, to recruit them into that mission. That's how Paul lived. He was willing to put things off, sacrifice some hopes and plans that that might happen. And that's how every Christian should live. But you know, it is possible to live the Christian life the other way around so that our hopes and desires and our dreams come first and we fit them into our lives. And then if there's any convenient gaps, we put in like our Christian commitment. Let me tell you what happens when you live your Christian life that way round. Christians lose their vitality and do not experience deep joy. They feel at times they're just playing at things. Paul wanted to recruit the Roman Christians into the mission of God. And that's what he wants for you. For you to know that you are part of the greatest and most significant adventure on the planet. And you must be willing to give up your small ambitions to put preferences and genuine desires and some good things on hold and maybe sacrifice them in this life. That together with all our brothers and sisters throughout the world, we might be part of fulfilling that dream that one day the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There is, there's a time when Jesus comes back when that will be ultimately fulfilled, but now there's a fulfillment as there are Christian communities all over the world. But it takes us putting away some things and reminding ourselves we have one life we shouldn't waste it, but invest them in something that's of eternal significance. So I want to give you three things to think about. One is about motivation. The second is about vision. The third one is about involvement. Motivation. What? This is what motivated Paul. He could think of nothing greater than being part of spreading this gospel. Because as he says at the beginning of the letter... The gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. And you know why sometimes 
We don't get passionate about that. I think it's because we have too narrow a view of what the gospel is. So if you're not careful, you can end up with thinking the gospel is all only about the next life and not about this life. So when we die, we know we will be with him. But it's not just about then, it's about now. And it can be narrowed down to it's just about me and mine. But the gospel is about, not just about me and mine, it's about the whole of this world that we should be actively involved. Salvation means that God is on a rescue mission to this world to get it back on track, that it might fulfill, fulfill the potential and purpose that God had in the beginning. So let's go back to the garden. Adam and Eve, before the fall, before the rebellion, what was the purpose that God put them on planet Earth? The purpose was that they might enjoy each other and develop each other, that they might have children and develop them, they might populate the, through them the whole world, and they might be engaged in bringing out the beauty and the wonder of creation. And that as they did that, they would have immense joy and fill their lives with worship as they were lived in harmony with each other and with God. And we know moments like that. You know, when we help somebody else, when we do see something beautiful, we think, this is what life's about. But it's marred and spoilt. And so often people don't know that. They know tragedy. They know heartache. They know selfishness. They know bitterness. Because of that rebellion that happened. But God, when he gets hold of us, is to put us back on track. To help us put, as far as it's possible in this life, to put the world back on track. You know, sometimes we sing, isn't it? Oh, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the things thy hand has made, then sings out my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art. You know that verse in Romans, one of the top ten? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And usually we, we focus on we have fallen short. And we think, well, we've sinned, we've fouled, we've disobeyed. That's all true. That's what that verse says. All of us. But we miss the positive parts. You know what we should have been? We should have been the glory of God. Not just perfect and not failures, but we should be the glory of God. So today, people, and we're moved, aren't we? We see the ocean. I see the, I see the sea most days. It's great. Um, <laughs> you see the sea, you see the cliffs, you see um, storms, you see mountains, you see the stars at night, and you say, oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. But beyond the splendor of stars and mountains, the thing that was supposed to most advertise God's majesty and splendor and wonder is us. It was supposed to be Adam and Eve and their families. It's, and it's still supposed to be us. The people can look at us and what God is doing with broken and soiled people, but redeeming them, rescuing them, seeing how they live in community and going, that's what it's about. That's when life is really being lived. That's why I know like, my life doesn't have to be wasted or aimless because there's a place on planet Earth where people are connected to God and connected to each other. And they're redeeming this world. They're acting as sort and light. God wants that to so capture our imagination that we put aside our small ambitions. We're willing to sacrifice legitimate things that not only that we might experience this, but untold millions might know it 
And that is done, it's done one person at a time, but it's also done when you plant Christian communities in places that don't know that. I don't know if I can communicate this, but if that becomes your overriding ambition, any sacrifice you make for that seems worth it. And it brings back the joy, the passion, the thrill of living on planet Earth. And that's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for us. That should be our motivation. Beyond all other things, not our comfort, not our success, but his success in his world. So I want to ask you, the second thing to think about is vision. How big is your vision? Um, how's the big, how big is the vision of King's Church? How is the bi- big is the vision for your life? You know, if, if someone says to you, what, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? I mean, how do you answer that? Well, I go to church. I serve on a team. I, you know, I help with the kids and stop them getting bored on Sunday mornings. I, um, I give some money. Is that how you see it? Reminds me of the story of um, an old story. You've heard it before. About a traveler who is taking a rest. He stops at the roadside and he's just opposite a building site. And uh, as he's sitting there taking uh, a breather, a guy comes along carrying a hod load of bricks. And he says, uh, what are you doing? And as he grumpily walks past, he says, I'm carrying bricks. So he sits there and another man comes past and he's carrying bricks. And he says, excuse me, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a wall. The third man comes past and he's carrying bricks. He says, what are you doing? And the man puts his hod down and stands tall and says, I'm building a cathedral. All men were doing the same thing, but someone knew the purpose. When you give your money, when you give your time, when you share your talents, when you invest in a child, you're part of God's global mission to demonstrate that life can be different, to turn lives and communities around. You're part of that. And he wants us to see that, wants you to know that, that there is something far more significant than just giving money or giving time. And that he wants to use anything that he's given you to be part of this great mission. God is about turning sad lives around and sad communities around and demonstrating his goodness. People need to know that life can be different that they don't have to live aimless and wasted lives. But I need to challenge you. This is not just about Catford or Lewisham or South East London. You're supposed to be actively engaged in God's global enterprise. And that's not just Steve or team members going away, but in some way or another, not necessarily travel, but it will mean for some of us travel and moving, that we're all in it. And can I say to the leaders here, Your job is to help connect people's activity to that vision. And if you could, people connect to that vision, they're going to give their all to that. And sometimes they just feel like they're serving you. We're helping Steve or the team do these big things. No, no, no. You're involved with God in this great thing. And you're just as vital as anybody else. If I can adapt and apply a verse from Isaiah... It is too small a thing for you, my servant, to restore people in Catford and Lewisham in London. It's too small a thing. 
I will also make you a light for the nations. That you might bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's not a, just about Catford. It's not just about Lewisham. It's not just about South East London. It's not just about the UK. It's about the uttermost parts of the earth. Your vision needs to be that big. And it's not just in the few, but in all of us. That is the vision that God calls us to. So finally, let's just think about what your place is, your involvement, your place in the big picture. Paul says, I hope to visit you by passing through and have you assist me on my journey. Now, when Paul wrote assist and when they read it, they knew what he meant. He meant three things. You can, the scholars tell us this, that this word was used in a particular way in the New Testament. So here are the three things you need to consider about your involvement in God's global mission that is worth every sacrifice and brings deep joy and great thrill. The first one, and you won't be surprised, it meant money. When Paul wrote that, the Romans went, wants money. Notice he didn't go with a begging bowl. He said, this is the gospel. For 14 chapters, he's been saying, this is the gospel, this is glorious, this is fantastic. And I want you to assist me, be part of this. It's only when you get a, a glimpse of the glory of the gospel that you're willing to give. They could give financially. Paul, at times, was not above going back to his old trade and mending tents. But his, he was most effective in bringing apostolic input to communities. And when he had financial support, he would do that full time. When he didn't, he would go back to mending tents and doing the sort of his ministry part time. And what Paul is saying to us today, it is possible to have church with no full-time staff, without owning your own building. You can do it without musical instruments and PA systems and computers and all the other things. But you know, you're much more effective in today's world when you can have all those things and you can have those at high quality. And money makes that possible. So... I want to speak particularly to those of you who earn lots of money or you've got lots of money in some way or other, but it's true of all of us. You know those resources? They're not yours. They're his. The money in your bank account is not yours, it's his, and he's entrusted it to you. And he entrusted it to you that he might bless you and bless you and yours. That's legitimate and that should be a joy and you should be grateful for your jobs and however that money's come and it is to bless you but it is also to bless others. And all I want to ask is can you consider, have you got the balance right in the way you're using those resources to bless you and yours and to bless others? And are you using some of those resources in, through some channel to bless not just Lewisham and the UK or Europe, but the distant parts of the world. Because that's why he gave you those resources. And it brings you joy when you use those resources in the way he asks. Second way he can help is assistance meant not just money. It meant other things. It could mean a whole load of things. So in Rome, 
Uh, there might have been people that had lived in Spain and could give him tips, they could give him wisdom, they could give him contacts. I know some people in these cities, these people could help you if, when you land there. Um, some people m- might have had a boat that went to Spain and he could have got a, you know, got a lift. Um, some people, um, while Paul was in Rome, would open their homes and he could stay with them and they would feed him. All of those things are part of assistance. To ha- you could assist me on my way. You could help me in this way. And all those things today help ministry to happen. So some of us don't feel we're front line. But you know, for every fighting man on the front line, they tell me in an army, there were seven people behind them making it possible for them to be effective warriors. And you might be in that chain. You might not feel your front line. So I'd encourage you, take an inventory of the things that God has given you, your time, your skills, your homes, your abilities. And just say, Lord, I'm willing to use these for your global mission, for this wonderful gospel. The problem in most churches is not that they lack resources, but they lack release. Let that not be a problem here. I just remind you that for 10 years we ran here and I headed up a leadership training program. And some of you uh, provided accommodation for the young men and women that came on that. Many of them are serving God in all sorts of, well, all of them are serving God in all sorts of different ways. But one of the things that thrills me is that three of the men that came on that course are now church planting in the great city of Istanbul. And those churches are thriving. And you know who helped that happen? Who was part of that adventure? It wasn't just me and other trainers. But those of you gave accommodation. You made it possible for them to attend that training. I want you to know, you weren't just giving your home. You weren't just providing B&B. You were part of God's global mission, which is now bearing fruit in Istanbul, and those churches are thriving. And you were part of that. And in all sorts of other ways. People that cleaned the building so we could do training or provided resources so that we could have a flip chart or a computer that helped training. You were all part of that. And you should feel good about that because the angels rejoice that you did that. Resources. Make an inventory of the resources you do have, not what you don't have, and make sure you've given them to God for him to use. Much of it will be to bless you. Much of it can be used to others. Finally, uh, the third thing about uh, assistance was people. Paul one day turned up to a city and there was a young man called Timothy and at the end of the visit he said Timothy come with me. For God's global mission to succeed some of us have to move. Some of us have to leave these shores. It won't happen in any other way. Some of us have been in England for a time but our home is elsewhere and for some of us it might be going back to be missionaries to our own people. For some of us, we're going to lands that we've never been to before and we'll learn languages that we thought we could never learn. For some of us, the front line is in our workplace today and in our neighborhood, and we won't ever move very far from where we're living now. But some of us have to move. There are communities in the UK that have church buildings, but they have no living, live witness to Jesus Christ. There's no community in which there is the life of the kingdom And those places need beacons of light. But also there are vast parts of this world that would be true of. And there are still millions of people who have not heard the name of Jesus. 
We want to be part of that, don't we? In Bournemouth, I met with a couple, young couple last week. Uh, he's a teacher, she is a radiographer. In January of next year, they're going to go to a Muslim city. So for the next two to three years, they're going to spend all their time in building friendships and learning Arabic. I think it's probably outside Mandarin Chinese, the hardest language in the world for Westerners to learn. They're going to do that. They're putting on hold their plans, their dreams, their hopes for a family. They're giving up well-paid jobs because this vision has captured them. And for some of us, when this vision really gets hold, it will mean similar moves. But I want all of us to have the vision, whatever it might mean, and for that to be our attitude. For whatever it might mean, I want to be part of this. I don't want to be on the sidelines. So, finally, can I remind you of this? God always desires to conceive in us a bigger vision than the one we're imagining. God always desires to conceive in us a bigger vision than the one we're imagining. So whatever you imagine for kings, do you know what God's got is bigger. Whatever you imagine for yourself, what God's got is bigger. And I want to finish with this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You have one life. Do not waste it. Invest it in something of eternal value. Amen.